would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His blessing on our time together. Our Father, we thank You for the timeless truth of Your Word that in Your good providence You have preserved for us this day. A grateful hearts uh, we have, O oh Lord, that we have the privilege of coming uh, to read Your Word and to study it together. We pray, O oh Holy Spirit, that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear with clarity the good news of the Gospel, and that our response, one and all, would be one of faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, unless there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whatever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now you know from our studies in the book of Matthew over the past number of months... Well, that we could say that the purpose for which Jesus came is really a twofold purpose. And that is one of absolute, total obedience and submission to the law of God at every point in his life and dying as a substitute for sinners, that painful and shameful and cursed death of the cross. And it's this twofold mission of Christ, his perfect obedience and his substitutionary death that really drives all that he does throughout his earthly ministry. His betrayal by Judas, as we read about it here in Mark chapter 14, is nothing that caught our Lord by surprise, for it is something that has been in the mind of God from all eternity past. And yet those human agents who hand him over to death are certainly responsible for their guilt and hatred within their own hearts. And we've been studying the book of Mark together on Wednesday nights throughout this entire school year in our senior high large group gatherings. And as we've been studying that book together, I've been struck with the frequency and the intensity with which Jesus speaks of the cost of following him. That it is Jesus' work, that work of perfect obedience and sacrificial death that calls for a particular response on our part. Namely, it is a calling, it is a response that we could call discipleship, wholehearted devotion to the Lord Jesus, a longing within our own lives to submit heart and mind and all that we are to His authority. 
The gospel is likened to an aroma, a fragrance, you see, of life unto life, a fragrance of death unto death. That the call of the gospel is something that is a general call. It goes out out to everyone. And yet the response to that call of the gospel can never be one of neutrality. It is either a further hardening of the hearts to the one who rejects the good news of the gospel, or it is a softening of the heart to the one who receives it with joy and delight. Even Jesus himself speaks of the necessity of this dramatic response to the one who encounters him in such places as Luke chapter 11, where he says, anyone who is not for me is against me. Or in Luke 14, if anyone would follow me, Jesus says, he must hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. I have come not to bring peace in this world, but sword. I have come to set the earth on fire. These are not the words of a politically correct Jesus. If you understand Jesus, you see, if you understand what he is saying, then the response, again, cannot be one of neutrality. There is no leaving the same way that you came. I think we could say that this radical response to Jesus is really the only response if you are hearing him correctly. For his statements are polarizing and intrusive. R.T. France puts it like this. This is the sort of thing that happens when Jesus is around. People find their prejudices shaken. Some of them respond by digging themselves deeper into their trenches. Others find themselves, to their amazement, abandoning the preconceptions of a lifetime. And they are never the same again. And so it is this radical response to Jesus that we see, I think, reflected here in this narrative from Mark chapter 14 that we will look at this morning, two diametrically opposed responses to Jesus, a response of hatred on the part of some and a response of devotion and adoration to the Lord on the part of the woman who anoints Jesus. And so first, let's consider together those who have hatred toward Jesus. And we read in verses one and two that it is the chief priests and the scribes who are looking for an opportunity to have Jesus arrested so that they can have him killed. Not just arrested and removed for a time, but to have him killed. Now, this is quite an amazing thing. You see, here are the religious leaders, those who are charged with the task of instructing the people in the truth of God's word. Those who are charged with the task of themselves embodying what it means to be a follower of the Lord. And yet they are so filled with blindness, so filled with rage toward Jesus that they are able somehow to justify within their hearts conspiring together to murder him. Now this desire to have Jesus removed permanently is not something that just popped into their minds one day. You can go all the way back to Mark chapter 3 and to see that it is there after Jesus heals the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath that those scribes, those leaders begin to talk amongst themselves about how to destroy Jesus. So the larger question, of course, is why? Why do they have such hatred within their hearts toward the Lord? Well, very simply, it's because Jesus is a threat. He is a threat to their own power and to their own influence. Jesus is teaching something that is contrary to their understanding of the law. 
they have a different view on how they think they can be made right with God. And to accept Jesus and to accept his authority would be to admit that their carefully constructed system of laws and regulations is absolutely wrong and therefore must be discarded. And most of you can probably think back to the very first car that you owned, perhaps as a teenager. I can remember when I was 18 buying my first car, which was a four-door sedan, which I absolutely loved, at least for the first few months. And after that, it seemed like every month, like clockwork, something would break on that car that would take almost my entire paycheck from Baskin-Robbins to pay for. (laughs) It got so bad that uh, so unreliable of a vehicle that I was afraid to drive too far for fear that I would be stranded somewhere. These are in the days before cell phones, mind you. And being the frugal person that I was, I often tried to fix the car myself, which just made things worse, as you can imagine. And after a while, my dad finally took pity on me, and he offered to help me get a more reliable form of transportation. I could have had two responses to my dad. I could have said to him, no way. I have just got way too much invested in this thing. I have scooped countless balls of perfect spears for the customer to earn money, to keep this thing going. I have spent numerous hours in the garage trying to decipher repair manuals to figure out where these leftover pieces go. I simply cannot acknowledge that all of my time and all of my money has been worthless. No, no thank you. I will continue to just patch it together. In fact, I'm offended. I'm angered that you would even suggest that I get rid of this thing. Well, thankfully, that wasn't my reply, but instead, (laughs) thank you. Thank you. Please take this burden away from me, and I will gladly receive your gift. You see, to acknowledge foolishness and to acknowledge defeat can only be a good thing when the gift is so much greater in comparison. See, the only thing that keeps anyone from entrance into the kingdom of God is his own pride, a failure to repent and a failure to believe that only in Jesus alone is there forgiveness and life. And these men have so much hatred in their hearts toward Jesus because in their pride they simply cannot admit that that carefully constructed system of laws and regulations that they have spent hour upon hour, year after year of their life, patching together, they cannot admit that it is worthless. They will not let go to see with clarity the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that is here staring at them right in the face. And so they hold on to their false thinking. They hold on to it to the point that it controls them, to the point that they meet together in secret locations behind closed doors, planning together how to have Jesus arrested and killed. And of course, this is where Judas comes in in verse 10. The perfect solution presents itself to them. Something better than they could have ever imagined. That one of Jesus' own has agreed to betray him. Now again, while the crucifixion of Jesus is something that is part of God's sovereign decree, nonetheless, Judas is held responsible for his betrayal. He is acting according to the desires within his own heart. He is not forced to do something that he does not already want to do. We read Jesus' indictment and warning to Judas in verse 21. As Jesus is there with his disciples in the upper room, he says it would have been better if he had never been born than to follow through on his betrayal. 
Now, while Judas' name is pretty much synonymous with betrayer, very little is known about him other than the fact that he hands Jesus over for condemnation. We know in Matthew's account that Judas received 30 pieces of silver in exchange for handing Jesus over to those religious leaders. Now, this is not a substantial amount of money. It's the amount of money that someone were to pay according to the law if your ox gored another person's slave. It was money that was to be paid in restitution for an act of that matter. And so we know that later Judas then feels some sort of remorse and shame for what he has done. He tries to return the money that he was received and ends up taking his own life. Now, there have been all sorts of reasons speculating, all sorts of reasons throughout church history as to why Judas did what he did. What were his motives? What was he really after in handing Jesus over? Well, perhaps there was genuine hatred within his heart, a hatred that mirrored the hatred of the religious leaders because Jesus was not just what he had expected. Or we know according to John chapter 12 that Judas was a thief. He helped himself numerous times to the money bag that the disciples would carry around for their expenses. And so perhaps Judas was just in this whole Jesus thing for money or power or influence. He thought that by hanging around Jesus, he could benefit in some way financially for himself. And it was this extravagant act of this woman that was just perhaps more than he can handle and just pushed him over the edge. Or perhaps it was Jesus' talk of going to Jerusalem and dying that just really freaked Judas out and thought, this is the time to get out now before I'm handed over along with him. We know also that many Jews expected Messiah to be the one who was to come and to overthrow Roman occupation, and that Messiah was to be the one who was to ascend to the throne as king. And so perhaps Judas thought that because of Jesus' claim to Messiah, that the thing to do was to sort of force Jesus' hand to encourage others to join him and rise up in a military fashion to force Jesus to take that throne. Again, thinking that in some way, because of his close association with Jesus, that he would benefit in some way. The point is, we don't know what Judas was thinking. We don't know exactly what he was after and what led him to betray Jesus in this horrific act. But we can say this. Judas was one who was using Jesus. Whether he was in it for a personal gain whether he was in it for increased power and influence or status or prestige or whatever it was, he was a user of the Lord. He looked at Jesus and he saw him as a means to an end. He saw Jesus as a means to his own end. Jesus was just there to help him get what he wanted. And when it didn't pay off, when it didn't materialize, he had no problem discarding Jesus. See, he becomes so consumed with himself that the result is a harder and harder heart. One that doesn't listen to Jesus' severe warning. One that does not care to see beyond his immediate desires. One that just wants to get rid of Jesus rather than listen to his grace and seek forgiveness. One commentator puts it like this. Judas had noticed the strength in the master's voice when he had stilled the storm, when he had cursed the barren fig tree, when he had rebuked those who were seeking to devour widows' houses. 
He was aware of the tenderness in Jesus' voice when he pled with sinners to come and to find rest in him. He has listened to the Savior's marvelous discourses and to the decisive and authoritative answers that he gave to those who hurled questions at him, trying to accuse him and trap him. Judas had watched the great physician in the act of tenderly restoring the paralytic or bending down and mercifully touching and healing the sick. Judas had witnessed all this and much more. And then he decided to deliver this unsurpassably powerful, wise, and compassionate one into the hands of cruel men for 30 pieces of silver. Now, it's very easy to look at Judas and see one who was terribly self-focused, who was arrogant, who was blind, who was hardened. It's easy for you to look at difficult people in your own life and see those same characteristics and those that you don't particularly care for. But think for a moment about how these same tendencies might be reflected in your own life and how easily we may make peace with the sin that dwells in our own hearts. From the moment that we are born, we are told that we can do anything that we set our minds to. We have it ingrained in us from a very early age of watching Saturday morning cartoons that the world is about us. The world is there to serve us, to cater to us, to fulfill our desires, to make us happy. We are told that fulfillment and satisfaction can be found in this life. Never before in the history of the world has there been a generation as entitled as our own. And I'm not saying the generation that's behind you, that's younger than you, but the generation in which all of us are a part of. And if the goal of life is happiness, then happiness very simply can be defined as this, that my pleasure must outweigh my pain. Very simply, if it does, if my pleasure does outweigh my pain, then I am a happy and a pleasant person to be around and I will enjoy you and others in my life. But if it doesn't, then I believe that I am titled, entitled to become angry, to become frustrated, to become discouraged. I believe that I'm entitled to remove those obstacles that are preventing me from having the happiness and pleasure and enjoyment that I believe I must have. Now, this is nothing new. This, of course, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when our first parents decided to lay aside the authority of God's word and seek for themselves their own pleasure, their own desire. But it was the Epicureans in ancient Greece who were really the first ones to sort of intentionally hone in on this, on an outlook towards all of life. And they sought pleasure in a variety of different ways, perhaps through a life of asceticism or a life of radical hedonistic living. But whatever it was, the formula was basically the same. As long as my pleasure outweighs my pain, then life is worth continuing. Now, we might not be quite this explicit as the ancient Greeks, but oftentimes this is how we live. Am I getting back more than what I'm putting in? We could call it sort of a cost-benefit analysis toward life. And so toward my work, toward my relationships, toward my school, or even toward my involvement in the local church, I use this cost-benefit analysis. And so in a relationship, for example, it may look like this. Is the effort that I am putting into this relationship paying off? Is the return benefiting me more than my investment? If the other person does the thing that I enjoy, if she talks about the things that I want to talk about, namely me, 
If I'm getting an appropriate level of affection and adoration and security and more, then I'll continue to invest. But when that person becomes too much of a drain, too boring, too routine, too abrasive, too annoying, or whatever it might be, then the investment may no longer be paying off. And so I'm justified in discarding that relationship. And so whether it's a job, whether it's a relationship, whether it's my schooling or even my life within the church, I get burned out when my expectations are not met, when I don't get what I think I deserve. And you see what the focus is here very clearly. The focus is all about me. It's all about the self. And so I use this cost-benefit analysis to drive the things that I do in my life instead of being driven by the truth of God's word, being driven by his loving kindness, being driven by his good and loving providence. Instead, I'm driven by my pursuit of happiness. And so where Judas calculates the worth of Jesus, 30 pieces of silver, that's what he's worth to me. And we become appalled at how outrageous that might be. We need to see how we do the same thing in our own lives. Another pastor has put it like this. He said, you might say to yourself, I'll believe in the message of the Christian faith if life is the way that I want it to be. If I can define my life and live the way that I want, then I will believe in the gospel. If I can marry the person of my dreams, if life is meaningful to me, as long as this Christianity thing is working and paying off, then I'll continue. But as soon as it gets too rough, As soon as it becomes too intrusive and I have to change part of my life that I just don't want to, that I have no problem discarding part or all of it. Judas, you see, was a privileged person, one of the twelve, living with Jesus, eating with him, drinking with him, walking with him along the road, living in his presence, living in the presence of God incarnate. But notice verse 18. It is there in the upper room that Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, one of you will betray me. Now, if Judas is as treacherous as we oftentimes think of him, then why did the other disciples not immediately rise up and bind him and prevent him from doing what he was about to do? Well, very simply because he looked like the rest of them. On the outside, he looked like every other one of the disciples, but it was his heart that was filled with the poison of self-interest. And what about you? You hear the gospel proclaimed to you faithfully week after week. You encounter the living Christ on the pages of scripture, and yet you know within your mind and within your heart, within your private life, that it is not the way that it ought to be. Perhaps there are indulgences of fantasy as you dabble in pornography or you drag on and on in a relationship with someone who does not belong to the Lord and your heart and your mind gets more and more entangled as that relationship continues to progress and you convince yourself that it's something that's pleasing to the Lord. Or you gossip about another and you convince yourself that you're just sharing. Or you belittle others, you find fault with those around you You hold on to the pride and the arrogance within your own heart. No one knew that Judas was scheming to betray Jesus. He was great at following Jesus and doing the things that he was supposed to do. He looked like everyone else, and yet the Lord knew his heart. And eventually, his heart was exposed. 
Well, let's go on and look at the extravagant sacrifice on the part of the woman. And we know in John's account in chapter 12 that the unnamed woman in Mark is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And you'll recall that Jesus had great affection for this family. It was Lazarus, of course, who died and Jesus spoke and called Lazarus back to life from that tomb. And so even though Mary had a close relationship with Jesus and knew him well, it still would have been socially unacceptable for her to come in this setting when men were sitting, dining together at the table. And yet she is so overwhelmed by her love and devotion for Jesus that she simply does not care what others think of her. I think it's important to note that Mary performs this great act of devotion not to get something from Jesus. And in that we see a great contrast between her and Judas. Judas, who's just in it to get something from Jesus. But Mary, who is doing it in response out of gratitude for what Jesus has already done for her and for her family. And we read the description of this perfume that she uses to anoint Jesus with in verses 3 through 5. We read that it was pure nard, or some translations read spike nard, which is a very costly and rare oil that was harvested from plants at the base of the Himalayas over 2,000 miles away. The disciples point out that it was so costly that it was so valuable that it could have been sold for almost a year's wages. Now, don't think of this jar as sort of a jar of perfume that you might keep on your dresser at home and save for special occasions. This is not something that Mary would just take a little dab of on the way out to a nice dinner with her family. This is not something that would have been used at all, but is something that would have been treasured. Something that is more of a family heirloom, even something that was more of an investment rather than something to be drawn upon. And the nard, we read, was kept in an elaborate, expensive jar, this alabaster jar. And this jar would have been sealed in order to protect the value of the contents. This is why she must break it in order to pour the oil out upon Jesus. Now, again, this is not simply a family heirloom. But in many ways, we could say this is her inheritance. This is her security, something that could be drawn upon if times got tough for her or for her family. You could think in your own life, perhaps, of a valuable piece of jewelry that's been in your family for generations, something that your mother handed to you, perhaps, on your wedding day, something that is very dear to you and you guard closely. And you know that if things got unbelievably desperate for you, you might have to part with that treasure. It's so valuable that it could help you in a time of crisis. Certainly, it would be the last thing, though, that you would ever part with. And yet she does not hold on to this security blanket. She takes all that she has. She takes her future and she pours it out upon Jesus. And so any sense of security or any sense of stability that this alabaster jar may have brought to her, she gives it all up and pours it out upon Jesus. And immediately those around Jesus begin to complain. What an impractical thing to do. What an absolute waste to pour out all that you have upon Jesus when so many better things could have been done with the money if she would have just sold it. But notice that Jesus does not condemn her for this act, but he commends her for what she has done. Out of great love and devotion, Jesus says, she is anointing him for his burial. 
sacrificing in a deep and a meaningful way as she seeks to express her love to Jesus. Now, I would venture to say that if you or I were there, sitting at the table with the rest of the disciples, then most likely we would have responded the way in which they did. This makes no sense at all. This could be sold, and it could take care of our budget deficit for the year. What a silly and what a wasteful thing to do. And if you think about it, from a purely pragmatic standpoint, it is useless. She doesn't need to get anything from Jesus. She already has her brother back from the dead. She already has his mercy and his grace and his love. But the disciples you see are looking at Jesus through the spectacles of practicality and usefulness. But Mary is looking at Jesus through the eyes of gratitude and devotion. And so because of that, it is a beautiful thing that she does for the Lord. It may not be very practical. It may not be very useful. But it is a beautiful thing. And why does she do this? Why such an extravagant act to the Lord Jesus? Well, she sees the beauty of Christ and she longs to respond with the greatest act of devotion that she can think of. In response to who he is and in response to what he is about to do by taking her sins upon himself, she is compelled to make this wholehearted sacrifice of devotion. And this, you see, is what the gospel demands, a life of wholehearted allegiance and devotion to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that it is the message of the cross that is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it's this foolishness of the gospel that compels followers of Christ to do foolish things in response to him, like pour out all that they have to the Lord. And later in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, we are told that whatever we do down to those menial tasks of eating and drinking, that we are to do all to the glory of God. And we cannot glorify him unless we glory in him unless we delight in him, unless we value him supremely above all else. And in this great act of devotion toward Jesus, we see one who gets it. And so for us, the question is, do you value him above all else? Do you delight in him more than anything else in the world? We teach our children from a young age to memorize at least the first answer to the catechism, question one. What is the chief end of man? That our purpose in life, our end, our goal, the reason for which we are created is to give glory to God and enjoy him forever. And this, you see, is what it means to glorify God. It is to glory in him, to delight in him, to long, to devote ourselves to him. And as we look at the contrast between those who hate Jesus and the response of Mary in her great love for Jesus, certainly she is to be commended. Jesus even says so in verse 9. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. But notice what Jesus says there. Notice what he says is to be proclaimed. Not so much what she has done as though the response is simply go and do likewise. But in speaking of her act, it is the gospel that is to be proclaimed. 
It is the good news of what Christ has done that necessitates a life of ongoing faith and repentance, a response of such love and devotion to Him. Perhaps the reason that our response is not as radical and as wholehearted as Mary's is because our Christianity is, frankly, too easy. Legan Duncan, the pastor of First Presbyterian in Jackson, Mississippi, tells the story of a young girl, 17 to 18 years old, who came from a Muslim country to America to study. And in her time in America, she was drawn to a church, heard the gospel, and was brought to faith in Christ. She was later baptized as a member of Christ's church. And over the summer, she returned home to her country. And her father, of course, was disappointed at her faith in Christ, but was nonetheless supportive of her and loving toward her. That was not the case for other members of her family. One day, she returned home to find her uncle waiting for her and asked her if it was true, if she had been baptized as a member of the Christian church. When she affirmed that it was true, he took a chair and began to beat her over and again until she lost consciousness. And thankfully, her father returned in time to save her took her to the hospital, and when she was well enough to travel, he sent her back to America for her safety. And her pastor sat with her and asked her what was going through her mind throughout this horrible ordeal. And she replied, before I lost consciousness, I thought to myself, if my uncle's religion can create such hatred to the point where he is willing to kill, then shouldn't the gospel of Jesus Christ impact my life to the point where I am willing to die for him. And isn't this what Jesus is getting at as he commends this beautiful act? Not only do we see it here, but we see it throughout the Gospels, this radical, this intrusive, this wholehearted call to discipleship, to follow the Lord Jesus at the cost of everything, your affections, your desires, your pursuits, your dreams, your relationships, your body, your possession, then all that you have is to be given to the Lord. And we take vows to the church, and rightly so. We should be reminded that in those vows, which are oftentimes taken so lightly in the culture in which we live, but really in those vows, as we identify ourselves with the Lord Jesus, we are vowing to die to ourselves and to live for Him. And the reason that we so quickly, I think, return to this personal happiness paradigm of life is because we fail to sink into our hearts the beauty and the sufficiency of what Christ has done for us. He came to earth laying aside those riches of heaven in order to live a life of poverty that you might become rich. He laid aside those rights to divine sonship in order to purchase you to gain you, to secure your redemption. And it's not as though we can now somehow pay him back for what he's done. That's not why we give our life to him. But rather we give our lives in joyful service and in humble gratitude because he purchased us, because he made us his own. To the point that, you see, we don't live any longer with self at the center. We don't live any longer with personal happiness as the goal. We become overwhelmed with the beauty of Christ, so much so that we want to give all to him. The gospel 
is all of grace from first to last. And yet the gospel is really beyond our ability to fully comprehend. And yet I think the calling is more costly than we have yet to grasp. And we'll sing in a moment that great hymn by Isaac Watts. And as we do so, pay attention to that last stanza in which he writes, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands, demands my soul, my life, my all. And even as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, we see here in the bread and in the cup, we see the love of Jesus poured out for us. His blood shed for us, his body broken for us. As extravagant as this act of devotion was by the woman as she poured out that oil upon Jesus, it pales, it pales in comparison to what the Lord Jesus has done upon the cross where our atonement was secured.